Welcome to the Idea Fit Pro Show with your host, Sandy Todd Webster. Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Idea Fit Pro Show. This is Sandy Webster, Ideas Editor in Chief, and your host for the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my friend and colleague, Anthony Carey, about a range of fun and fascinating topics. Anthony is the founder and CEO of Reactive Training, a fitness and rehab equipment company that focuses on functional movements that provide variability and novelty in a reactive environment. He invented Reactive Training's patented piece of fitness equipment, the Cortex, to provide a multidimensional reactive training challenge in a singular device. I have used this thing a lot over the years, and let me tell you, it is both novel and variable for many training applications. He also recently introduced the Cortex Sit, a device designed to relieve back pain and strengthen your core while sitting. Anthony brings more than 32 years of experience in the fitness, corporate wellness, and athletic training industries, and is passionate about biomechanics, corrective exercise, functional anatomy, and motor control. His master's degree is in biomechanics and athletic training, and he is the 2020 IDEA World China Innovation Award recipient, as well as the 2009 PFP Magazine Personal Trainer of the Year. So many great topics to cover with AC today, so let's get right to it. Anthony Carey is in the house today. AC, welcome to the Idea Fit Pro Show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Great to be here. Great to see you. Thanks for joining me today. It's wonderful to see you, as always. Now, you and I go back many years, too many to mention, but um, as a starting point for listeners who may not know your background as well as I do, um, if you would start by giving us a high-level view of how and when you got started in the industry and the path that led you to what you're doing present day. Sure. Well, it was a long time ago. Um, when I uh, when I graduated with my undergrad, personal training certainly was still very rare. Um, just uh, movie stars and and the elite and the, the wealthy were doing it. Um, but my goal was always to kind of um, move a little bit more into something that was more around sports medicine ishy things. So mm-hmm. moved from New Jersey to Southern California to the hub of this and San Diego State with an amazing program in biomechanics and athletic training. Did all that uh, for my graduate work. And then uh, really right out of school, started to work with uh, a gentleman named Peter Goscu and the Goscu Method in the early 90s. And um, that really set the tone for, for my career uh, in terms of working with chronic pain and, and biomechanics through exercise and, and uh, self-empowerment for people. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I've been doing ever since in terms of working with clients and then started to get involved a little bit more in the education process as well uh, later on. Yeah. And you're also an inventor. We'll get to that soon. But, um, you know, I I was reading an interview you did recently with Authority Magazine, and I was totally blown away by the Dr. Jonas Salk story that you told, which this happened early in your career. And I had no idea about this story. So I would love for you to share that experience and describe how it helped to inform your wellness perspective. Well, for those that may not know, Jonas Salk is credited with 
finding the discovering the polio vaccine right mm-hmm. and there's the sock institute here in in san diego which is a kind of a research hub for uh infectious diseases for people around the world um and early in my career uh i got an opportunity to work with him because he was having some challenges with his lower back and uh you know the first thing that struck me and people often ask me like who's you know at a celebrities and all that who's the who really stands out to you and, and i've worked with some celebrities and, and high-level athletes and all that but Jonas Salk by far was a highlight of my career and it was early on. And, and it was, it was the fact that he was still so um, just so on top of things, right. He was still involved in research. He's in his early, early to mid seventies, but he was kind of feeble, Mm -hmm. right. The way he moved around and um, you know, he was somebody that really highly valued the time he spent uh, in his research and his passion for his work, but he wasn't really taking care of him in the way that, you know, we like to think about it now from a longevity standpoint. And I thought to myself, wow, what a shame um, if this gentleman can't live the life that he wants to live and continue to make that contribution that he he enjoys because of his lack of uh, physical capacity. And so I thought to myself, you know, A, he's amazing. Everything that he's done, I was in awe of him. And and as much as anything, I was in awe of his humility. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy was so soft-spoken, so willing to, to take input from me at that, you know, this 20-some year old. Uh, but then I realized, you know, it's, the mental and physical aspect are so important. And, um, you know, it's not just about aesthetics. It's about your ability to kind of do the things you want to do for the rest of your life and to be able for those two aspects of our, our mental capacity and our physical capacity to match themselves to be able to continue to do what we want to do. Yeah, and you definitely carried that through your entire philosophy with, you know, function first with the the clients you're still training daily. Um, I'm wondering who, you know, as far as shaping you as a young professional, who were some of your early mentors in the industry? And what were some of the lessons that you learned from them? Yeah, well, I, I think initially, it was a combination of people within the in my graduate program. So I had to do this sort of the hours to be an athletic trainer and work with, you know, a lot of sports medicine people and, and bits and pieces of, of what I learned from them was critical. Uh, but I have to say Peter Gosky was mm-hmm. um, probably the biggest initial mentor that I had because it was a whole different way of thinking. And this was a guy that had kind of was a maverick on his own and going out there. And I, I, I learned, I owe a great deal to him. also feel like I learned some things I didn't want to do from him, um, which is equally important. And, and I think that's that's the point of mentors, right? Mentors generally fit uh, something that we need in a certain way at a certain time. They're not like our fathers or our mothers in that respect. They, you know, they, they fill a need based on their experience. And and uh, he really set the set me in a direction that, uh, that I'm in today um, and learned a lot from him in a lot of ways. Yeah. And did you actively seek him out or was it just you kind of landed there with him? I was looking for a job uh, while I was finishing my <laughs> master's thesis and it was pure, you know, serendipitous that I, uh, I ended up there because back then I was looking for ads in the newspaper and, uh, got an interview and, and got the job and was literally clueless about what they did, uh, in terms of the, the differentiation when I went in there and, uh, ended up spending three years becoming his director of education, training mm-hmm. all his incoming therapists. They still use, big part of the manual today that I wrote back in the early nineties. Oh, that's um, fantastic. So, uh, and they're still, they're still doing good work there, but there's been a little bit of a divergence in, in underlying philosophies to a degree, but uh, that's okay. That's what I consider my professional growth. 
Right. And do you currently mentor anyone? Have you had people come to you um, for guidance or how, how have you handled that? Yes, in different ways, um, kind of short term and long term stuff. For example, our director of education for Function First, and I think you've met Kevin Murray. He's up in Canada, sure, sure. Uh, and he's part of our. He's helped me with my curriculum um, developing. Our, I should say our curriculum, the Paint Free Movement Specialist, and uh, he started out by almost stalking me on Facebook, wanting to come down and spend time with us. And so finally, I did. And turns out that uh, he's been somebody that um, you know. I think I've I've helped professionally over the years. So he's been a long-term one. And then we have students that come in all the time and, and we do our professional education, which in, which continues, continues on in a mentorship type capacity as well. So um, that's my strength. And then, but I'm always seeking mentors myself uh, at different points and different times within my life. Yeah, absolutely. We, we all need that for inspiration and to just open new doors for us to, to understand maybe what we've been missing out on or, or you know, backfilling some of the knowledge that makes us even stronger. Absolutely. So I mentioned early on that um, you and I go way back. Um, and in fact, I joined your studio, Function First, in San Diego over 10 years ago. I'm thinking like it's 12 or 13 now, AC, at this point. My house was just 1.1 miles to the studio, and I used to walk and ride my bike there a lot. Um, and though you've since sold that part of your business, it's really still the same basic X factor functional training book group that I, I go to every morning that you envisioned many years ago. Um, I think, you know, I can only imagine that it must feel great that this concept you developed has had such staying power. Um, and I just was wondering um, why you think this small functional studio concept and this X factor group still resonate with clients today. I mean, still resonates with me. Um, there's probably quite a few reasons. Um, certainly, like any other studio, it's the community and that sort of thing that that brings people together. But uh, you know, we used to, we called it the X Factor because we felt our programming really was the X Factor behind it. Between the the tools we used, and we had those we had those four pillars of which was your reactive training, which was around the cortex. You had your suspension training. Uh, you had your um, uh, react. I'm sorry. You had your ground based training, which was more of your you know traditional stuff, the floor based stuff, and all that. And then and then we also used the power plate and incorporated all those kind of things in there. So looking at those, those pillars made it interesting um, and uh, made it scalable and also just made it really engaging and fun. You know, people were, people often reflect on, they'd come in and they super fit people and do our workouts and they would be like, wow, never did anything like that before. So I think the underlying uh, idea of, of the ongoing variability, uh, but still within boundaries of, of, kind of specific objectives that you wanted to accomplish without the workout. And it's not just completely random chaos uh, is appealing to people, um, especially people that, that are not super driven by, you know, having to do the same exercise, you know, three times a week to see that progress. Yeah. Um, and so they, they, they really see the connection between real, real world applications and um, just the novelty of what, what you can do with your body. I think still what really stands out to me about the, the group that we train with is that, you know, we have we have folks who are, you know, as old as 75 and, you know, folks in their in their 20s and 30s and everybody in between. And we're all doing the same workout just yeah. with, you know, good modifications, good coaching, um, 
it, it just, uh, it's always really worked for me. And I, I want to mention also that when I first came to Function First, I was training pretty seriously for triathlons. And so everything I did was linear movement and endurance-based cardio. It was just such a, a grind. And training with you and the team there helped me realize that my body really didn't like those repetitive movements anymore. And that um, also that my brain was pretty fried. I was just really bored with what I was doing. Um, and then on top of everything, I was constantly injured and aching from all of it. So training functionally, learning, um, you know, using the four pillars that you mentioned, understanding tissue preparation through corrective X and dynamic warmup um, really has set me up for the last 10 to 12 years of being pain-free, injury-free. And um, I just also really began to understand how connecting your brain to the process can be so valuable. Um, yeah. So today I'm like, I'm stronger, I'm more flexible, I'm more mobile than ever. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the benefits of Corrective X and moving load functionally, um, what, what those do for human beings, and then also the mind-body advantage that you think comes along with it. Well, corrective exercise, I think, you know, in some ways has gotten a bad rap. Some ways it's gone off on a on a sort of, you know, unnecessary path in terms of applications. But I just look at it in ways that we we can positively influence the body through stimulus, through a very strategic stimulus that can in, can change sort of our existing underlying uh, biomechanics. Right. And some of that done over time can be something learned and permanent, something done can also have an acute effect. And I do something every day myself as well, because I think it's in the best interest of our body. So um, from a corrective exercise standpoint, you can call it corrective, you can call it restorative, you can call it movement prep. They sort of all um, can come from the same type of exercises. And um, utilizing that is just, it's, I think it's care for your body, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to spend 20 minutes rolling on a foam roller, you probably can get more benefit out of 20 minutes of doing a kind of a, a, a strategic, purposeful, corrective exercise program. So, you know, that's obviously been the, the, the number one thing that we've done with Functions First over the last 30 years. And then the X factor was an outgrowth of that, taking those concepts and applying them, you know, the movement-based concepts, applying them to the more traditional fitness related stuff and, and staying within the ethos and our underlying philosophy of what, what we stood for from a movement standpoint. So when we, when you, when you took it to that next level, which is what, you know, what you sort of graduated to and, and get to continue today, I think it's important also to stay, you know, when you say you're, you're pain-free, but you're pain-free doing all the things that you want to do as well. Right. Exactly. You know, some people in the movement world shrink and they say, I don't have any pain anymore, but, but I don't do this, 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 or this anymore because I'm, I'm too old or it used to hurt my knees or, or my doctor said, don't do it or whatever. Right. I mean, I, th I think 99% of us have the capacity to really expand what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I probably could go back to triathlons, but for me, it was more the, I think the boredom, <laughs> I just was sort of done with that. And, um, just, uh, you know, working out with Vipers and Cortex and all of the super fun equipment that, that always was at function first and is now at brainstorm, which is the evolution of, of where we came from function first. Um, it just has, um, I probably could go back to triathlons and and be probably improved most of the times I did 10 years ago, just because of the do. type of training I've gotten. I'm just sort of choosing not to, but I'm ready for life, you know, and doing the things that I want to do. Yeah. And, and 
you know, as you described, there's a lot to be said that with the mind-body connection, not the sort of the intrinsic side of it, but also just kind of the cognitive side and the execution, the executive function that has to happen with some of the, some of the moves that you're doing because they're different and there might be cues that you have to follow. And there's, there's reactive, uh, both cognitive and subconscious things that we're doing. And and all of that adds to, um, basically, you know, neuroplasticity and Mm -hmm. and things that are good for us as, as for any of us, but especially as we age. And so, and, and, you know, there's, there's a ceiling to that, right. You can make it too complex and somebody basically, especially if, if they're, much older, they'll, they'll freeze a little bit, but by continuing to stimulate them that way and not making it mindless exercise. Uh, and again, being purposeful. I mean, I, I, that's, a, I think that's so important. Just the, the concept of purposeful beyond either caloric burn or, you know, adding volume and load to something can, can really change the outcomes of our exercise program. Yeah. And I still leave the studio every day smiling and feeling great. So it just uh, it, it serves me well. And, and obviously the group I'm working out with, many of whom have been there for seven, eight years, um, it's working for them, too. So, AC, it's it's pretty clear that you were an early adopter and now um, one of the go to experts in our business on corrective exercise and, and helping people get out of chronic pain. What do you think has changed in regard to using corrective exercise with chronic pain clients today versus when you started Function First um, almost three decades ago? Yeah, by far the biggest thing is kind of the the neuroscience around pain that we, especially chronic pain, that's become clear and clear over the last roughly 15 years um, in the literature and, and how that's trickled down into what we can do. Um, as, as fitness professionals and of course stay within our scope of practice. But, you know, back in the day when we started, it was purely a biomechanical view of pain. You know, it was, it was, you know, your posture, it was these, these mechanical stressors to the tissues or to the joints. And so we really got a a better understanding of what chronic pain or, or the elements of it. Now we look at it through a, through a three, through a lens or a paradigm of a, a biopsychosocial model and, um, you know, it, that's a game changer for both the client and the corrective exercise uh, practitioner if they really can kind of uh, take that, take those concepts and implement them into how in, both into their lifestyles and obviously into the programming and the coaching and the conversations that we have. With them. Mm-hmm. So for listeners whose ears may have perked up with this bit of conversation, what are a few things that you think fit pros can do today to to be better equipped to work with clients in pain? Yeah, well, always it's it's let's start with uh, understanding our professional boundaries. I think especially younger, younger trainers, um, you know, we're as a trainer, especially in a, in a traditional three times a week kind of thing or even a twice a week thing. We see our we would see our clients exponentially more than they would see their doctor, right? Um, and Absolutely. so when something comes up, you be, very often the, the fitness pro becomes the first the first line in that in that line of professionals that they should see. And we've got to understand that you know, especially with an acute pain, uh, th- that's an absolute referral out. But with mm-hmm. chronic pain, the next step in that is understanding a little bit of the science behind it, which makes it really um, empowering. Uh, in terms of what we can share with the clients, who we can refer them to, how they can maybe seek out resources that educate them a little bit more on them. But uh, understanding those concepts of the biopsychosocial, which I'll be really quick on this, but the bio is everything that we've traditionally learned about chronic pain, which would be your biomechanics, the, the biochemistry, the inflammation, 
all that stuff, the wear and tear, the posture, the, all those things. And then the psycho is, has so much to do with things like our beliefs, our attitudes around pain, our, our emotional stressors at home, our expectations about healing, all those kind of things. And then the social is the societal pressures that go along with it as well. So all those all kind of it's like a three legged stool. All three of them are always present. Some are a little bit more influential than others. But as fitness pros and especially with our with our basic education, we're always looking at that bio side. And there's, there's actually some harm that we can do in terms of the words that we use and things like that, not even in the exercises, but in the way that we're describing or, or trying to communicate to what's going on. Oh, your shoulder's forward, so that's why you have you know, neck pain. Well, that person's shoulder never goes back, and they're, in their mind, they're going to have neck pain for the rest of their life, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to – understanding that is a, is a big part part of it. Uh, and, and along with that goes the coaching aspects that are related to that. So we can understand some fundamental stuff. And, we, and, and then the third biggie would be giving the human body a little bit more credit uh, than we have, which means its capacity to heal. Um, the fact that we're so integrated that we don't have to you know, focus on the area of pain all the time, that we can look to dissipate that stress and those forces, mm-hmm. which leads to increased movement confidence but eventually really can uh, serve that client towards their goals instead of being, you know, hyper-focused on what hurts and hyper-focused on trying to give exercises and fixing something that's broken. Great stuff. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for that overview. So you're, you're working with everyday clients as well as elite and pro athletes across many different sports. How does your assessment and coaching approach differ between people like, say, you're assessing me and coaching me and a pro athlete? Is the process any different or... The, the assessment's not. The assessment is what it is. You're, trying to, you're basically trying to find in data, info, into you know, what this person's movement capacity is like right now, where the restrictions and limitations are, um, you know, what they're apprehensive about, that sort of thing. And, and you keep in mind, I'm seeing chronic pain clients, right? So I'm not seeing an athlete that twisted their knee over the weekend, or, you know, if I'm going to see an elite athlete, there's somebody that's sort of already been to a bunch of different practitioners. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, you know, chronic pain is anything that's been consistent for more than three months or intermittent for six months or more. So I'm not getting that person that's going to do better with their sports medicine professional. I'm going to get that person that just is frustrated with this lingering type stuff. But the coaching aspect, the conversation can be a little bit different. Obviously um, you want to be, you want to uh, you don't want to place any doubt in them. You don't want to do things that, that they feel might um, in, in some way interfere with, you know, sort of the, the skill or technique of what they're doing. Right. So would you take a, an elite pro golfer and you start, I wouldn't start talking about his swing or her swing. <laughs> about, right. Uh, Cause I don't even golf. I know the biomechanics of it, but I don't really golf much. So I'd be talking more about as it relates to overall movement, you got to be careful with the language. You never want to say things are weak. We don't do that anyway, but you don't want to say to an athlete that it's that you're weak or that's, or that sort of thing. So um, having a little bit of that understanding from the coaching perspective, those conversations can be a little bit different, but in terms of the assessment and the data that we're trying to collect, it's the same for everybody. Yeah, that it's so interesting about the language having to be um, so nuanced. And, you know, just, um, I'm sure it becomes habit after a while as a coach to, you know, but when you're when you're first starting to work with higher level athletes, I'm sure you just really have to be, you know, sort of cognizant of everything you're saying. Just, yeah. and, I, and I think one of the, uh, one of the things that I and I appreciate about some of some of our colleagues that, that 
do this too is you know, the last thing you want to do is be in awe of a professional athlete, right? Because they're coming to you for help. And, and you, you know, you're not going to talk about, oh, I, was, I'm, I love your, this about your game or you know, it's just, you know, the thing they want most is, you know, their time is important. All that is, but, you know, let's, let's make sure that we're focusing on why they're there and not, not a bunch of the other, you know, uh, super fan stuff. Yeah. Just get down to business and, yeah. and, you know, do what they came to you for. Right. Absolutely. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, as I mentioned um, in the beginning of the show, you're an inventor and you have at least two patents that I know of for fitness equipment. And this equipment's being used all over the world in many different training applications, uh, training and therapy. Um, if, if you would just please describe both the Cortex and the Cortex set and walk us through the many and varied training possibilities that are out there. Well, uh, so our company's called Reactive Training, the company around the Cortex, and it's really about reactive variability. And that simply means that responsiveness with the body without having to think about it for the most part, and then creating an environment that uh, creates incredible vari variable movements that we don't get, right? So both platforms tilt, slide, and rotate all at the same time. So they're omnidirectional and create a lot of, uh, a lot of unique uh, responses to the body as you can, as you have experienced yourself. Yes. And, and, and the idea is, can we, with this variability, can we expose the body, both the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system to, to stressors that prepare the body to expand that movement catalog. Right. And that's, that's, I, I use that term often in both around function person. This is the, you know, if, if our movement catalog is, I can only reach like this, when do I get hurt? I get hurt when I get outside that bubble or, or, if that's outside of my catalog, if I can expand that, it means I build a greater resiliency and I, I give my motor system more problems to solve because it's, it's increased all these different little, little novel movements. And so the muscles fire in different ways and the joints are slightly stressed in different directions. And, and if it's the sit, it's mostly the lumbopelvic region. If it's the cortex, it's depending on what position the user's in uh, that we can take advantage of that. Yeah, I, the, I remember the first time I ever saw the Cortex, I, I you were in URSA, you were at URSA, and uh, you were there with with the device, I'd never been on it, and you invited me to stand on it. And it this thing will rock your world, people. I mean, if you haven't, haven't tried it or seen it, or seen it, definitely look it up. But if you get the opportunity to play around with this device, I, I can personally vouch for um, both how bedeviling and enchanting it can be it's it's got so many um so much versatility and it, it can challenge you in so many different ways um and i you know I, I think my favorite application of it is um for you know the softer gentler drills mm -hmm. for you know spinal mobility and exploring fascial lines but um i i do have a, a drill that always made me laugh doing it um, my and maybe my least favorite but it, it it's pr probably because I couldn't finish the drill ever because I was always laughing so hard but we would do um, Derek Price who was one of my coaches at function first as well DP would have us get on the the cortex um, in a in a prone plank basically a plank and so the body's out like this and then with the we hands were, on the board right hands on the board and then we would run around in a, a circle as fast as we could but there was also a chaser who was on two feet and it was a, a game of tag. And so, I mean, talk about high intensity training. That was very, um, I mean, just great core work, great um, strength, 
endurance. It just the whole thing was um, so much fun, but kind of crazy too. We would we have never seen anybody finish that drill not smiling. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. Because it brings you back to like being a kid, right? You're, exactly. You're, like, like you're you're being chased, and you don't want to yeah. be tagged at all. So it gets very exactly. competitive. <laughs> exactly. For both people too, right? Yeah, one exactly. Exactly. That's right. Um, but as the inventor, AC, what's your favorite application of it? And I'm sure that's changed throughout the years. Uh, it has. Um, you know, I, I I refer often to the mobility aspects as a secret weapon because you know when people don't know the product well, they immediately go to either balance or core stuff, which are which are great things to do. But I I really love the hip mobility stuff. I mm-hmm. literally do that every single day. Yeah. Uh, with it. Um, and I, and it's just so unique in terms of hitting the tissue on these different vectors that you can't, not even a therapist could do that for you on the table, uh, without spending, you know, an hour on one joint, the way that you can kind of move through and, and, and what that does for both the, again, the, the mechanical aspect, but also the neuro aspect of it as well. So yeah, that, that's my favorite as well. Yeah. Cool. Um, if you could just share a little bit more about the cortex set, like what describe it and you know, what, what it's used for. I wish I was sitting on one right now, but. Um, sure. Well, uh, it fits on, on flat firm chairs. It's not great on super cushion chairs, but, uh, my wife, who, you know, well, um, it was actually kind of her idea early on after our second child was born, she was spending so much time sitting and nursing postpartum yeah. uh, that she wanted, she thought there, there could be an, something that she could be doing for her abs at that time. So we created the cortex sit instead of it being flat. It's got a little bit of a convex shape, which unloads your tailbone, kind of gives a little upward pressure to the pelvic floor, get your sit bones in there. But again, the idea is that it's responsive. So if I were sitting here right now on mine, I would, you know, if I reach for my glass of water, it would do something unconsciously that I would have to react to. And so, you know, we hear the sitting is a no smoking, new smoking or the sitting disease and all that. And people are either sitting in the super expensive chairs or they're standing desks or they're sitting on balls. Yeah. And the advantage of the sit is that I could rest if I wanted to, but also the, there's things you can do on that that you can't do on a ball. Um, and it, it, can, it just, again, it gives sort of hydration and, and variability and the movements to the subtle movements. So we're not loading those same structures when we're spending so much time. on mm, Super cool. Um, you are, you're such a thinker and, um, I'm just wondering what trends you might be seeing in the industry today that either excite you or maybe dismay you. Um, well, you know, obviously the social media access to, to information and other educators has been good for me. I've learned of people that I, I really didn't know before or know well of that I find are, are bringing value to that side of things. And, and then the flip side of it is, of course, is we can imagine that there's people that have no business delivering uh, sort of exercise advice to the masses that are, are, are probably the biggest influencer. So that that's always going to be a part of it. Um, I think hopefully that we'll, we'll find some kind of middle ground on that. You know, it, what, what disappoints me is that everything is a soundbite now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I first started deliver, delivering education, I would do corrective exercise videos on, a, on my YouTube channel. That would be anywhere from four to 10 minutes long. And people would watch those whole things and we, we'd kind of dive deep into the explanations and the rationale and the, and the progressions and regressions. And now everything is you're scrolling and you're trying to get somebody's attention for 10 seconds. Um, and then you're still trying to deliver valuable content that way. It's, it's, it's a tough thing. So um, the good and bad of that, of course, has been a big part of it. Um, also noticed that, that 
the all the big push for the certification um, credentialing early on and, and how important that seemed has seemed to sort of faded now a lot of the big clubs don't don't even keep up uh, checking on the certifications studios don't necessarily requirement require it and so you sort of wonder you know how many of these younger or newer trainers I should say not necessarily younger but newer trainers are getting their information from social media and then you know taking a taking a quick cert and so just a little concerned about uh, how you know are we or are we not diluting the the industry overall in, in the long term that um, we're getting access to more people but as as the needs of, of the general public start to rise both with age and obesity and, and chronic illness that that we're we're starting to flood it with a lot of people that really have uh, don't have the background the education the experience to work with that level of people so you know, there's, I guess there's good and bad pluses and minuses in all of this that we hopefully will sort itself out. Yeah. And if you, if you think about how the industry was deemed as non-essential early on in pandemic with the shutdowns and right. such, it's because we hadn't done a good job of informing what we do as a profession. Um, and now we're in this conundrum of, um, yeah, social media is a great way to communicate with people, but um, for the most part, it's uh, so I'll, I'll start by saying that our our industry is kind of aging out. You know, we're we're getting older. We're graying as an industry. There are young people coming in and it's heartening to see many of them going to university, you know, doing a, a deeper level of study. But as you say, there are still a lot of them out there who are just, you know, doing, you know, weird tricks on TikTok talk or YouTube right. or, or wherever it is that are not educated that tend to, you know, bring down the level of the profession. And so we've somehow we've got to reach out to those newer trainers yeah. um, and make them feel welcome and educate them about getting educated. Um, so I, th I think it's a very it's pretty complicated um, and we just uh, we need to do a better job as an industry, as some of the veterans uh, getting getting that message out there. Agree, hundred percent. Yeah. So you also remarked in our pre-interview prep that you've been really surprised to see how little has changed in the business uh, of fitness in the commercial setting since the start of pandemic. Could you please elaborate on that thought and explain what evolutions that perhaps you had expected? Well, I think. The biggest thing that I've noticed is everybody was just waiting for this to go away and come back. First, first we tried to make some, you know, specific adjustments to the spacing of things, right? Which was sort of a, a necessary evil at the time. How do we cut up our spaces so that people can still work out or take it outside? That that was great. That was that was basically accommodating those that were already training to to figure out a way that we can still keep you training or keep you or keep our businesses going, mm -hmm. our doors open, right? Um, but, you know, after that, it's just been so to your point earlier, there's been no messaging about, you know, how how those that have weren't type two diabetics or those that weren't obese, uh, how their responses as a whole, statistically, were less deaths, um, less hospitalizations of those people that were taking care of themselves. Right. To, to my in my view of what I've seen, both, you know, in industry periodicals online um, is that is that there's been no, it's just been, let's get back to normal. Let's get back to where we were two and a half years ago, right? Uh, can we can we get the memberships back up? But nothing's changed in terms of, okay, how do, how do we position fitness? How do we position the conversation now to both 
uh, prevention and longevity in, in a way that has to work now because it's still people are still dying of, of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're still seeing deaths, hundreds of deaths every day. So why are we not why are we not adjusting our message um, and kind of because that's you know lack of a better word that's a pain point for for people. Um, and what can we do to, to start to bring those folks that have not been to the gym and were and had comorbidities that that were part of this process? How do we get them engaged? I mean, it was it was part of the conversation pre-pandemic, but why is it not you know out in front right now pushing that message uh, instead of just getting back to you know summer shape or back to school or what, you know whatever the marketing message of the day is. Right. It would be wonderful to have some data around that. You know, just there's plenty of data about the unhealthy folks who, you know, really suffered or have long COVID or, you know, passed away from the disease. But where's the data, you know, from our, the, the proof from our own gems where right. the, the right. folks who had been active and kept moving all along who, you know, are, are trying with their diets and all of the different wellness aspects what's the what's the outcome there and how can we really make leverage that and make it work for us as an industry so i think that's what i think that's what we need and and before you know we know how short the memory is uh, of the general public right if, if covid were to go away tomorrow people in, in our industry would be right back to right back to where we were in 2019 right in early 2020 nobody's going to be talking about uh the stuff that that people were trying to push about whether they were anti-vax or not of, of what you could do for your own body um, to, even if you were anti-vax or vax, it doesn't matter. The healthier you are going into this, the more resilient you're going to be against disease, right? Well, you and I will have to hash this out over a workout or a beer or something, and we'll, uh, we'll solve all the problems <laughs> or at least uh, come up with some good ideas. Um, Absolutely. Well, we are just about out of time, but before we sign off, um, I was hoping you could, first of all, let listeners know how they can get in touch with you. And I will put all of that stuff in the show notes for sure. Um, and then if you could leave us with a, a parting thought or some words of wisdom for finding longevity, success as a fitness pro. Oh, well, you know, those that are interested in what we do as a business, there's functionfirst.com. Those that are interested in the education side of what we do, there's functionfirsted.com, functionfirsted. And then those that are interested in Cortex, it would be Cortex Fitness, C-O-R-E-D-E-X Fitness.com. And that's, and then I'm on social media. Uh, you can find me pretty easily on, on stuff as well. Um, parting thoughts, words of wisdom uh, <laughs> on longevity. Um you know, my goal is my goal is to be a one percenter, and and I mean one percenter in terms of health for my age group uh, for the rest of my life. So if I'm 87, I want to be in the one percent. I want to be one percent in the health category at 87 and at 99 as well. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's typical for all of us as we start to get into you know into our 50s and 60s and whatnot is is to start thinking about our mortality. But more than anything now, like I was like we started this conversation with Jonas Salk. I don't want to be, you know, sitting in a rocking chair at 85 and just watching the world go by. I still want to be making a significant contribution and doing all the things I want to do. So this, the science that's out, that's out there now on longevity in terms of 
supplementation, the biohacking stuff, all the things that we can do. Um, I think uh, as, as a system of what we are, it goes beyond traditional fitness now. And traditional fitness is a huge chunk of it, but you know, 1% better every day, right? If we can, uh, if there's a couple little things that we can do that have a cumulative effect, you know, compounding returns, um, then it's worth it for us to make those little tweaks within our lives, both professionally and for our own personal health. One percent, baby. One percent, better. <laughs> Thank you so much, AC. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. So great to spend time with you and pick your brain a bit. Really appreciate your time. Uh, I am thrilled and honored to be here with you, Sandy, and, and it's always great to catch up with you. Well, that wraps our chat with Anthony Carey. If you liked this interview, please check out the 60 plus additional IdeaFit Pro Show interviews we have banked on IdeaFit.com and on most platforms that host podcasts. Be sure to search Idea's multitude of video courses for Anthony Carey's courses, which include a great one on pain-free movement, science and application, as well as his pain-free movement specialist course. These and more courses by Anthony can be counted toward your continuing education credits, which IdeaFit Plus members get unlimited access to as part of their membership plan. This is Sandy Webster signing off. I hope you have a wonderful week. And as ever, thank you for all you do to make the world a healthier, happier place. Please reach out to me or the content team at content at ideafit.com if we can help you with anything. The IdeaFit Pro Show is part of the IdeaFit Podcasting Network. Many thanks to our executive producer, Jordan Leeds, and our engineer and editor, Mike Hilding. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Reproduction without permission is strictly prohibited.